Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Welcome back to our series, Harnessing Resilience. I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. We're dedicating six weeks in all, this is week number two, to this crucial topic because without resilience, there is no moving beyond our crucibles. We're featuring guests who found the resilience to overcome their setbacks and failures, as well as experts with practical insights and action steps to help you bolster your own ability to rise up when the bottom falls out. This week, Warwick and I speak with Katie Folks, a member of Australia's 2004 Olympic rowing team, who found herself and her teammates at the center of a national firestorm when the unimaginable happened in the middle of a race. She not only harnessed resilience to emerge from those trials, she studies resilience today to help others do the same. So Katie, tell us a bit about what got you into rowing? I mean, I think you mentioned you grew up in Ballarat, but tell us about family background because not everybody does rowing, you know, so it's not like you're on the ocean. I don't know if there's a river near Ballarat, but so talk about your family and how that all ended up lining up to rowing. Yeah, absolutely. And and great to be here. And I, and I think we have a, a similar passion. I too love rowing as much as I'm not so involved these days. Um, so they're really, you know, a bit of a, a bit of background. Um, I grew up in mostly in Australia, as you can probably tell by the accent, but also was fortunate enough to live overseas. My dad was a pilot and he, and you'll see probably here's some similarities as we, mm-hmm. as we talk today, he was really passionate about learning and trying new things. Mm-hmm. So where that feeds into it is as I was growing up, dad with his passion for flying and airplanes would go to different companies and different organizations to fly different airplanes so what that meant for you know one of the kids is that we moved around the world which was fantastic and where all that feeds into rowing is when i was um goodness i must have been about 11 years old we were living in a country called brunei and in those days, I think I was the only person with blonde hair in the country and never used to pat my hair. But the long and short of it is I was shipped off to boarding school and I still say I was an angel. They weren't trying to get rid of me. <laughs> so <I was> shipped, <laughs> off, <laughs> shipped off to boarding school to um, a town that you mentioned, Ballarat, which is about an hour or so out of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. And I was uh, on an academic scholarship there. And I am um, naturally height-wise quite petite, so I'm just over five foot. So when I joined this school, the PE teacher, physical ed teacher, came up to me very, very early on in my first few weeks and said, I think we need to get you to the boat shed. So they had a rowing program at the school. And of course, I didn't, I didn't even know what this sport was. And the <laughs> reasoning, the reasoning he said to me is you've got two things going for you for this role of a, a cox, coxswain. And that was you need to be small, which I was, and, and you need to be smart. And he'd seen the academic scholarship and thought she could do this. So I, I headed down to my, you know, first session at the boat shed and, and, that was it for a couple of years. I was hooked. I was literally thrown in a boat and 
I can't remember if I was told what to do, but you know, you know what it's like. You get to go out on the water. Here I was in year seven and I got to be in boats with, you know, year nine, so 15, 16 year olds. And then as I got older, I sometimes got to talk to the boys when I was in year eight. They <laughs> say hello to me around the school and um, lots of wonderful experiences. So that was my entry into the school. That, was that a co ed school or? It was, yeah, it okay. was a co ed school. Because in, in 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 Australia, at least when I was growing up, a lot of the schools were boys' schools or girls' schools, and maybe it's changed a bit. But um, you know, so uh, I think yeah, very much still in Sydney, it's like that. Um, in uh, outside of Melbourne, the couple of schools in in this area, I'm back in Ballarat now. Uh, there's a number of co-ed schools, and the other thing I should mention in there, you mentioned about a lake or a, a river. Yeah, yeah. We just happened to be sitting. Our boat club was sitting on a lake, and that lake um, was where the 1956 Olympic rowing event was held. So right through the middle is a proper Olympic rowing So that was where there. they had the, the Melbourne Olympic rowing. Yeah. Wow. So it was actually uh, all set up for that. Wow. Yeah. It was a little, you know, little rundown in, when I was there, but <laughs> it was a straightish <laughs> line and good water. So... <laughs> Well, who, who knew when you think, what are your qualifications, small and smart? I mean, you don't tend to think yeah. as, what does that qualify me? I mean, you know, in of itself, you don't think those two things correlate to, you know, a particular line of work. But um, but that that is, uh, boy, that is amazing. So, uh, and obviously, I'm sure list, most listeners would know, but Cox is the one who steers the boat, directs it, you know, it's almost sort of like a coach, maybe a bit, you know, they tell the cruise when to row faster and hey we're gaining on them and you know all of that you sort of so you're not just so you do a lot of coaching and managing and, and leading really in a sense absolutely yeah I often describe it as being a coach in the boat and my career post-coxing was initially coaching in rowing and then progressed to more broad coaching conversations but your, your role, and I'd, I'd think about it as I got a little bit better in the role, was that if I was to speak, I either needed to make the boat go faster or maintain boat speed and help the athletes do it more efficiently. Because there's a lot so, of encouragement that goes on. And, um, yeah, I'm sure you were a smart cox because here's an example that I can remember of one that's, uh, wasn't quite at, at your level of uh, motivation, even let's say in high school. We were racing one time in a regatta and um, and I, th I think we were in a four and the cocks decided in the middle of the race to tell the crew, I'm tired. <laughs> you know, as a cox, you never tell your crew who are rowing and you're not, I'm tired, right? Because we want to th throttle the guy and throw them in the water or probably worse. But yes, you, you never tell the crew that you're tired, right? No. Well, I wouldn't even use that word about them. I've heard some people say, I know you're feeling tired. I'm like, oh, that's not really the most inspiring message in there, is it? But I guess maybe it was a strategic trying to make you angry and get some adrenaline in. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, we were like 14, 15. I don't think he was that smart at that point in his life. So, no, it was... Um, not a swift move, but I know you've got a lot into resilience. Is there anything about your mom, your dad, just siblings or something that really helped shape who you are, whether it's, a, you know, a, 
a way to spring back from adversity, resilience. Does that come from anything in your background or examples? Oh, I'm, sh- yeah, I'm sure it's come from a lot. I, the, the, the person that um, comes to mind, and if I'm honest, comes to mind on a daily basis is my dad. Dad mm. and I were, were very, very close. Um, he passed away, oh, goodness, about 15 years ago now, I think. Um, but... You know, I grew up hearing these stories of, and, and many of us have these wonderful role mm-hmm. models in life, don't we? But these stories of this man that um, in his day was sort of breaking the boundaries and shaking off the, the shackles, if you like. From what I understand, you know, his his dad, my grandfather, was experienced, he was a prisoner of war, etc. and so you know, this mm. very difficult life and then became a plumber. And so there was an expectation that my dad too would follow in those footsteps and become a plumber. And dad, from what I understand, in his very early teens rejected this view and ran away to become a pilot. And, of course, if you don't come from, certainly in those days, if Mm -hmm. you don't come from a family with wealth that can facilitate Mm -hmm. that, it's a pretty difficult career to get into. So I heard stories about him, you know, influencing people at the local airfield that in return for him mowing the grass, they might teach him to fly and all of these wonderful stories. And then it wasn't just that, just constantly seeing this man that would be looking for an adventure or asking questions somewhere to find out more about something that really curious and What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just, you know, keen to actually get out there and, and explore and try things out and get better at what he did. Mm-hmm. So there were many times in life, if I look at through that resilience lens, where, you know, I think it was modelled that things could have been a challenge, yet what I saw was someone turn towards them and see them as opportunities to do things differently or try something. I mean, that's a really a great role model and you know not everybody has it but we're blessed when we do because I'm sure in that era when your dad was growing up it's easy to think okay plumbing is a good uh, job you know I can get you in you know we've got contacts uh, you know uh, it's a good it's a good life it can sustain a family and how are you going to afford all these fees and not, nothing against your grandfather but it would be easy for him to say look this is unrealistic Got it again. You know, you know, get your head, you know, get your head on on the ground. Stop with all these pipe dreams that probably won't work. You're setting yourself up for failure, and and just to have, and you can understand that perspective if that's how you've grown up. But the fact that your dad fought through that, I'm sure respected, loved his dad, but said, "Look, I hear what you're saying, but respectfully, I want to go for it, and I think I can make it." And did. Mm -hmm. I mean that that takes a lot of courage to go against, you know, what's what's normal for where you grew up. Not everybody goes against that. So no. it takes a lot of bravery and courage. So yeah, that was a great example. So I know you've got a fascinating story. So you uh, obviously coxed in, in high school and then tell us about what happened after that and then the Australian Institute of Sport came up. So what did you go straight to there or what happened after high school from there to yeah. Australian Institute of Sport? Yeah, well, I'll go back a step, actually, because in high school, by the time I was, so our equivalent of what we call year nine, so I'm about Mm -hmm. 15, so I've still got a few years left of high school, 
I made the school top boat and we won the local regatta, the local competition. Mm -hmm. And when I was 15 and growing up in a smaller town, although Warwick, you might know the head of the school boys in Sydney is the equivalent Mm -hmm. of what we had here. Yeah. It actually feels like it's the biggest event in the world. So here I am in my rowing career and we won this race. And at the ripe age of 15, I retired from rowing because I thought I'd reached the pinnacle of my sport. <laughs> so <laughs> I've done it all. Wow. <laughs> and so I did a little bit of coaching at school after that and, you know, did a lot of other activities. And then it was back when I went to university, I went to Melbourne University and went to a college there. And it was kind of expected as part of my, uh, I guess, selection to get into this residential college. I put on my CV that I wrote and therefore it was expected that you wrote for your college. And so there I was convinced to get back into a boat. Um, and really, really quickly that led me to joining the university and a number of selectors and state bodies were able to listen to my to what I was doing and I hit the radar of the Australian so, so you started off with a college at University of Melbourne and then ended up rowing for a crew for the University of Melbourne. Um, yes. I'm trying to think, uh, I mean, these days in men's rowing, you sometimes have women who are coxes or, or not. I'm trying to remember. It can be. Well, yeah, it's recently changed so you can. So that was a bit of a battle in my day, but I was the exception. So even at the college, I convinced them that I could cox the men's boat Right. Um, it was the faster boat. I wanted to go fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Who's going fastest and how do I get in that boat? <laughs> fair, en- fair enough, fair enough. Um, but obviously at a certain point you felt like, no, I want to be the cox of, of you know, women's eights and ultimately Olympics and you made that obviously, I don't know if it was a choice or just the way it worked out. But Yeah, well, it was interesting. So I started getting invited to camps at the Institute of Sport, which is in a city called Canberra. So I'd fly up and get to attend these camps. That, that, that's for, for US uh, listeners, that's the capital of Australia. So. Yes. Somewhere yeah. in between Sydney and Melbourne, kind of. <laughs> yeah, ish, yeah. <laughs> and in those days, this is before the Sydney Olympics, to if you wanted, the, I guess, the golden ticket to get to the Sydney Olympics in rowing, then the best way to do that was to be at, to be based at the Australian Institute of Sport. And they had one spot there for a female cox. And so there I am going on these camps and then flying back to Melbourne to the university and keep these various other aspects of life alive. And I was offered this one spot to the AIS to be their cox. And I think I was 22 at the time and I decided to turn it down. Now, at the time, my thinking was that I look back and I think, well, I was coming up against every camp, I was coming up against other coxes Mm -hmm. and I would see them come to a camp and they'd last a few days and my version of it is they'd be spat out the other side and you'd never see them again. So I think at the time, you know, only 22, I had this sense that I wasn't ready and if I wasn't ready, I'd just be spat out of the system and that would be it. But you can imagine the head coach's response when this young, his words, mm. arrogant 22-year-old turns down the, the, the ticket to the Olympics, basically. 
And uh, and so I was sent back to Melbourne, tail between my legs, and that was it. I think, you know, a lot of people said to me they thought that's they'd never hear of me again in the rowing world. In the the vernacular of Beyond the Crucible, that's your crucible moment, that moment mm. right there. You're invited, mm. right? You're invited to be on the team and you say, I don't know that I'm ready. And they don't care why you're not ready. They just sort of put a label on you. And um, you go back, as you said, with your tail between your legs. You realize perhaps later that was a crucible moment for you. How did you handle that? Because your career obviously didn't end there. So you handled it in a very proactive way, I think. I did. I did. So I had a couple of months where I focused on my university and I think, you know, was telling myself this story that, oh, it's fine, I'll find some interesting career whilst I'm studying statistics at university type of thing. Um, And it was a couple of months later I had this real uh, physical, I remember this physical response that it's time, I'm ready and I want that spot. So it was a really short time frame. And I rang the head coach up at the Australian Institute of Sport and I don't remember what I said. I have this vision of saying, da you know, have you waited? I'm here. <laughs> I don't I'm think I'm ready. Like that, right. but, yeah, I'm ready. Have you, have exactly. you waited? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and not surprisingly, he had no interest. <laughs> so being told no at that point. So the previous one was my choice. This time someone else was saying no. So my response then, I knew that the national championships were coming up, the rowing nationals. I knew that the Australian Institute of Sport women in their eight were going to be pretty much the Australian team. And I also knew that they had never been beaten at the nationals. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'll just put a boat together and beat them. (laughs) And so I literally cold called these names of these women in Victoria, my state, and um, introducing myself, most of them didn't know who I was. Uh, and it turned out that a number of us had a common interest, and that was to beat that crew. And so I was really, really lucky that I was able to pull together this fabulous women's eight mixed abilities, but some straight off the Atlanta Olympics, others up and coming. Most had felt frustrated, even burnt by the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport at one time. So there was this desire to beat them. And I, uh, you know, bribed my way or influenced my way into (laughs) borrowing a boat from a school and borrowing oars and begging my parents for the plane ticket to get to the nationals to race. Anyway, long story cut short, we got there. We didn't have a training row. We jumped in the boat on the day to race them and, you know, rode up to what we call the starting blocks, so the start line. Really windy day, really crazy windy day. And when you're in rowing, as you would know, Warwick, you need to back your boat into the starting line. Right. And the Australian Institute of Sport boat were up to their third attempt and they just were not backing it in. And I arrogantly zipped up there based on my years of rowing in windy Ballarat zipped it into the starting pontoon. So we already had eyes on us. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, you know, came flying out and, and in the end we beat that crew by about 12 seconds, which in rowing world is... Is a lot. I mean, how lengths. many, what, what does that translate into boat lengths? About four lengths of a, a women's eight. Yeah, four so lengths. Big, big I mean, that that's yeah. like a, that's a colossal mm. win. 
that's like uh that's you know I don't know what that would be in football, Gary. It would be like 30 nothing or something. It would be, it'd be a big score. <laughs> I could so. tell by the look on your face, Warwick, that it was quite astonishing. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, four boat lengths is, uh, wow. I mean, that's that's sort of astonishing. I wonder if part of you was channeling your dad. It's like, oh, you know, so I, I can't do this. Can't be a pilot. I don't have any money. I can't, well, I'll, you know, beg, borrow, you know, kind of barter, you know, kind of, I don't know. Genetic influence or yourself combination. It's um, that that is that is stunning. Beat the system, bit of fun. Well, right. Who who doesn't want to? So you know, who who are you? You know. So as you look back, it's kind of interesting. There was a time in which you didn't row at the end of high school, maybe beginning of college. Do you think, in hindsight, that was helpful that you just had it? Because some people can get burned out. I mean, you would know, obviously. I think of Ash Barty, you know, I think she's, and it was anyway, you know, number one women's tennis player. And she got burnt out playing uh, tennis. And then a few years ago, she just stopped and played, you know, women's cricket at a you know, fairly mm-hmm. elite level. And then she found a love of the, of the game and is back and is doing phenomenally. But you think there was a sense where you just wanted a break or? Yeah, I think so. And I think, again, if I, I look at that modeling of, of my dad, you know, as much as he loved being a pilot and he loved aeroplanes, he had so many other hobbies and, and interests. And so, you know, these days I'm more strategic about that. In those right. days, I think I, I, uh, I listened a bit more to my intuition. And so I certainly had those few years off in my later school years but even between the two Olympics that I went to, so I went to the Sydney Olympics, then I walked away from the program again. It's like I just needed to repeat this whole, you know, be named arrogant. <laughs> uh, and I went over to the, Nether- the Netherlands for a year and a half and coached rowing over there and then came back onto the system. And even then people were telling me, what are you doing? You've got the top spot. Why would you walk away? And I had this intuitive feeling that I needed to grow. I needed to do more and I wasn't going to get the learning that I needed in the one space. Right. And hence you you just follow. So there's a real lesson I think for people is don't ignore that gut instinct that says, you know what, I think I need to do this. I know obviously you got to make sure it's your gut instinct, not some strange voice. But when you, I think you know when it's really you and not channeling some other negative vibe or thought but just you know trust your gut if you're deep down you feel like you know what katie i i, I need to do something else you listen to that right mm, absolutely and do you know i know now that i'm a bit older i i find it harder to do now because of course there's there's more responsibilities now and it's but i think in those days i did trust it more and I also acknowledge I was really fortunate that I had those choices. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had backup plans, which a lot of people would potentially dream of. I had a backup plan of going back to a good university and continuing a degree. So I was in a fortunate position to, to have yeah, those kind of choices. It wasn't just jump off a bridge without um, thinking. But I, I want to go back to just some of those, that first crucible, because it's not easy somebody thinking of you at 22 as being arrogant and how could you possibly say no? Do you look back and say, gosh, was that, was I just scared or was I just, was I wise? Was I, was I really not ready? Do you kind of look back and say, well, it all worked out, but was that the right decision or 
I don't know, as you look back, how do you assess that first decision not to be part of the program? Yeah, it's really interesting that I, that I now, 20 plus years later, I actually think about a few points of that in life quite regularly. And I encourage myself now at times to tap into a bit of that. Um, I mentioned, you know, now about responsibilities, but the other thing I did back then is I had this, um, I think this greater, how would I say that, almost this greater inner confidence Mm -hmm. that there would be options. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I make a choice. I don't make the Australian team. I'd feel better about giving it a really red hot go and not making it. I'd feel pretty good walking away from that if I'd given it a really red hot go. And the same, you know, university, I remember thinking, oh, have I chosen the right degree? Maybe I haven't. I'll, I'll, I'll find something else. So I had this real... Whether it was right or wrong, I had this sense of that there were opportunities that I could find. It might not be easy, but I'd find them and I'd find goals that I would, you know, wish to strive for and that that process would make me happy. Another really important learning point that I think listeners should pay attention to is trust your gut and and trust the choices. And, you know, you, you, you make a choice. You never get to play out the what ifs. As I've certainly had a lot of that with my own whole takeover thing and what if. And if I talk to my family, and you never get to play out the what ifs. But trust your gut, trust the choices you make, and um, then move on accordingly. You don't mm. spending your life going back and and, and second guessing. Um, and but yeah, that when you went back to the Institute of Sport and they said no, and forming your own crew. I mean. Nobody does that. I, 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 I'm assuming that probably has never happened since that somebody did what you did, right? At least not in Australia, mm-hmm. formed their own yeah, crew. I, I mean, that just takes remarkable courage, confidence, chutzpah, however you want to express it. That, I mean, where, where does that come from? Because that's not normal, what you did. And you were what, in your 20s then. Where did that come from? You know, I, I don't know if I have a direct answer. I mean, I, I do attribute a lot of that to watching dad operate and him making choices and and even watching family members disagree with certain choices he made and him still making the choice and it working out from my perspective really well and having a you know an enjoyable and great upbringing and um, so whether it was that I do you know I, I have to wonder sometimes whether and this word can be used quite negatively but certainly in that era that I was much more selfish um, and and that could be, I can instead could use the word driven. Um, yeah. you know, some have positive uh, lenses, others don't. Um, you know, I think about a time when I was in Victoria and I was really frustrated. I was part of a rowing club and they didn't have women's boats going to a certain event and they wouldn't even give me a tryout for the men's boats because I wasn't, male and you know I horrified everyone then because I quit the club and negotiated with the other club down the road that if I joined them they'd let me jump in the men's boats 
Now, I didn't even realise at the time that the impact that that had and all the negative talk that apparently was associated around this arrogant girl. Do you think some of it maybe, and obviously we're in a different era, some of it could be sexist, you know, if, if men stand up for themselves, it's like, look at that guy, guy's self-confidence, yeah, good on him. But if a woman Absolutely. does that, it's like, oh, you know, she's she's driven, she's just, you know, I know there's probably more colourful words for it, but... You know, um, do you think there was some of that? Like, if it was a guy, it would have been, you know, good on him. You know, but if it's Katie, it's like, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, absolutely. Know your know your place. You know, who are you oh, to? You know. Absolutely. But I mean, but good for you with not buckling to the system, and there's nothing wrong with being driven. It's one thing if you're driven and mowing over other people and being successful at other people's expense. That's exploitation. That's not drivenness. But I don't think that's that's. I mean, obviously, I don't know you well, but that's not you. You're driven, but you're not trying to tread on. You know, it's not, you're not trying to get ahead at the expense of other people. No, and I think this is where the role that I had is maybe. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking the role I had is a little bit different too. So sure, it was about me getting to the Olympics, but a lot of the time, the way I would frame my growth, my learning, my drive was to help the boat go faster. And the mm-hmm. boat contained eight other people plus all the surrounding squads. Right. And so there were times as we're talking where I think, yes, yeah, some of the choices I made were really, really difficult. But I'd often step back and it wasn't about me. If I really felt strongly that, that this was for the good of the boat, which ultimately was for the people, my team, then I moved forward. And I kind of didn't, it didn't matter. <laughs> it was for the good of the team. So yeah. I think you deserve to give credit. So I want to get a bit into what you do now. But before we get there, you had a second uh, crucible. I think it was, was it the Athens mm. Olympics 2004? So that's um, that was pretty challenging too. So just help the listeners understand what happened with that one. Yeah. I, I will, and I will say, you know, of course, there were a number of other crucibles in between, as, as many of us <laughs> face many challenges, right. you know, and, and I'm sure you'll hear in my voice, this is not a topic I talk about often, but I'm sure. turning towards it now. I feel like I need to talk about, about it. So uh, going into Athens' second Olympics, we had just an amazing, amazing crew, and I'm talking here about short boat speed, but I'm talking about people. And anyway, so what, what the general public would have seen, and it was all over the Australian media, media is they would have seen um, an Australian women's aide that I was in competing in the final of the Athens Olympics. They would have seen the Australian eight come flying out of the start and being up there in medal contention until about halfway through the, the race. And then... They would have seen, it's much easier to talk from a third-party perspective, (laughs) they would have seen someone in the boat stop rowing and lay down as a result of that and then our boat came um, sixth in the final, which was the last place in the final because we were rowing for the second half of the race with I think about six people because one of them was laying down then others around her couldn't row. So that was one thing. This is one part of it is there's mm-hmm. this, you know, many of us eight, ten years towards this race and this this thing happens and we're trying to get our head around all of that. There's that one piece of this 
moment. The other piece of this moment, which I had no uh, um, anticipation of, was the media response mm. to this. And our crew were, oh, look, I, 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 I'm going to say front, it felt like front page of every newspaper. I know it was international as well, but from a national perspective, in every state for a number of weeks, hmm. um, dishonest stories, narratives around, you know, the girl that stopped rowing was a bad person to the team are awful people to they're a bad team right through to the Prime Minister of Australia saying that we were un-Australian. I'm not sure why, but we were. I don't know if that's because of the result or because of what the media said we did. Anyway, this really enormous moment in life, which as I talk about it and I can imagine some of the listeners thinking, mm -hmm. so what, it, a race went wrong. And, and it was just a race that went wrong. But the ripple effect of that on so many people was just enormous, including myself. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, and again, you don't need to get into details, but it's not as simple as, oh, there was a physical injury and it, it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't a simple prepackaged explanation that the media or the prime minister would say, oh, okay, now I understand, now we'll back off. It wasn't mm -hmm. that simple. So that, I mean, when you're spending years trying to, you know, get to the Olympics and you're in the final, which means I guess you probably had to go to the semifinals. And there's probably a couple of different rungs to get there. Not only is that horrendous with media, you've probably got, you know, team members, potential conflict there. And again, you don't need to get into those details, but there's all these dynamics, potential internal conflict, vilification mm -hmm. by the media without any mm -hmm. easy explanation and you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, dob somebody in, as they say in Australia. You don't want to get into the details because that's their story and it's not your story to tell. But it, I mean, there's nothing really you could say that would be helpful that you're able to say, right? You're probably in this box. There's no win box where this is one event where there's no way to win this event. It would seem, right? The event Absolutely. of public opinion. And and you've just articulated that so beautifully because for so long and particularly coming from that environment, you know, I've just talked about these other examples where I could make choices or I could plan or I could work harder. It all in some ways felt very controllable. And then all of a sudden, if I speak from my perspective, we're in this situation where, as you said, there was no, there was no win. There, there was no guideline on how to manage this. And so there was a point where we were told to say certain things to the media, like that there was a breakage in the boat. And, you know, in hindsight, would that have been easier? Absolutely. But, of course, you've got the values kicking in. We weren't trained in media. You have this group of women who was, were very passionate about saying, look, we don't know what we should be saying. In fact, we don't really even want to talk to them. We don't care about that. We want to talk to our families right now. But, but, do, but, but don't, ask us, don't ask <laughs> us to say something that's not true just because yeah, it might so, help other people because we have to live with right. that. So we felt really strongly about that as well. And I think the other piece in there that often gets uh, missed when people do still to this day talk about this story is um, 
you know, the media court wind of this particular teammate of ours had had scenarios in the past where she had stopped rowing to varying degrees. And so this became another thing to to Mm. put out on front covers. The piece of that story that got missed, which I think was the part that I grappled with the most, is no one talked about the fact that we as a team knew that history Mm. and still in many ways trusted our teammates. Because it was more than just whether you were going to row at full capacity from the start to the finish. I mean, there's much, you know, I'm going on here, there's much more to sure. a person than that. So ultimately, I trusted all of my teammates. And as part of that, I knew that we all came with our strengths and we all came with these areas we were working on. And that was the complexity of working in a team. But yeah, the media never showed any interest oh, in that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And I'd you know, love to hear what you learned from that because it wasn't something you could control. It wasn't, not that it matters, it wasn't quote unquote your fault. I mean, there's not a whole lot you could do at that point. But one of the things we say in Crucible Leadership is, you know, you're not defined by your worst day. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I made a as listeners would know, and Australian listeners would know, I made a cataclysmic mistake, failure to launch a $2.25 billion takeover that ended a 150-year-old family business that had, you know, City Morning Herald and Age in Melbourne, et cetera. And yes, there probably was a better path. I'm not quite sure what other paths would have been better, but certainly couldn't have been worse than the one I took. Okay, so that was a bad day when I launched the takeover. That was a bad mistake. But you know, um, should I be defined by that one day? Should this uh, poor woman be defined by that one day? And again, we don't need to know any more details than that. You know, it's like, well, I don't think so. Is that fair? Irrespective of all the reasoning. So, mm. but people tend to want to define you by, especially in the Olympics. It's that one day in the Olympics. Oh, you lost. Well, you're a swimmer. You lost by two tenths or two hundredths of a second or something ridiculous. You lost. You mm. failed. Okay. Mm. Sorry. I tried. (laughs) And one of the things that you said, uh, Katie, one of the things that you said when we uh, uh, talked off air was that, and I wrote it down, that you you held on to that narrative for a bit that impacted you that first time, right? You were like, okay, you don't want me on the... on the team, I'm going to go pull people together and I'm going to beat you. And you did. The second time a crucible hits, that's kind of a big uh, thing. You say you held on to the narrative. Why do you think they were different? Those two situations mm. were different. Yeah, I think for me, so as I, as I mentioned, there were a number of other crucible moments between the one I've talked about and getting to Athens. And in all of them, I felt like I had a choice. The way I turned up, the way I behaved, so it all felt controllable. The outcome didn't feel controllable, but it was all about me. Where this one felt different is I was aware that things can go wrong on race day and I had plans for every scenario you could possibly think of, including boat breakages and etc. And so that was my controlling component. I never anticipated the level that it could go wrong. So that was one piece and that that shook me because I, you know, if you talked about Katie and her performance, she, I, I, you know, visualized everything possible. So I was like, oh, wow, I missed something. So there's a bit of that playing out. But I think 
The other component for me, and Warwick, you just said it, is I could not and still can't work out what the better path would be. Mm -hmm. So every other scenario in life up until that point, and I say this knowing I've had a very fortunate life, I felt like the mistakes I made at times weren't that big a deal because it's like, well, you know, I look back and I should have just done this instead and I can fa- I can focus on the learning. With this particular scenario, I could not work out what should I have done differently and I, goodness, you know, trained as an Olympic athlete to reflect and, and look at yourself and I hammered myself, as I'm sure many of my crewmates did as well, about themselves down to the detail, that look I saw that day, that conversation I had, should I have not had it? Should I have had a different one? Should I, you know, everything you could possibly think of. And so I made it all about me because that's the way I operate best. Bring it on me, make the choices, move forward. But for the first time, that didn't work for me. And it became this almost debilitating I don't have the answer. I don't know what my learning is. How can I not know? How can I not know what my learning is? It's like this kind of I needed this um, happy ending. Mm. You know, this thing happened, and here's what I would have done differently, and I've lived happily ever after. I had this sense from somewhere, and I couldn't work it out. A number of things happened around the same time, which you know, as we know, we're complex as, as beings. So I came back from Athens. I found out that my dad, who I've spoken highly of, had terminal cancer. Mm. He passed away a couple of months later. So even though they're all very separate events, it sort of got packaged, I think. Well, that was like a a cataclysmic crucible, if you will, because it happens, you know, here's your dad dearly loved, role model, and, you know, and then this is happening. And, yeah, I mean, you can't control cancer or... You know, your dad's, it's not, there's no, nothing you could have done to prevent what happened. Yeah, I'm sure he had the best no. of care. And, and Absolutely. you know, sometimes there's a learning there is sometimes things happen and it's not easy to know what would have, like in my case, I can think of what hap- what I did was horrendously stupid, but I can, th- it's hard for me to think of scenarios that would have been better, at least in terms of made me happier or more fulfilled. That's a lot, when I'm a strategic planner by nature, so I'm, it's hard for me to think that. But in this case, yes, you could say maybe we could have, you know, we knew this person's history. Maybe we could have not and said, let's not have that person in the boat. Probably wasn't your call, I'm guessing. It would have been somebody higher up. But even then, it's like, I mean, how do you know that? You know, you you make the best decision and, you you know, it's not always your fault. There's not always an easy alternative. No, and, and this is the thing. I mean, you know, lots of, people, and no doubt you've experienced the same thing, can give you their simplistic answer. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't simple. I mean, using that example, I've had many people say, you should have just gone to the media and and got her out of the boat. Like, well, hang on. I had 10 years of high-performance history that told me that trusting your teammates led to boat speed. So why a couple of months before the Olympics would I just decide to not trust my teammates and go public with it? And also remembering that everyone in that boat, in the lead-up, made the boat go as fast as it was going, and it was going really fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, you can't just 
pull a piece out and expect it all just to function. Because you're not going to know the, the future. So you can no. only know what you're going to know. So just as we sort of uh, round this uh, turn, talk a bit about what you do with resilience, because I love uh, you talk about team synergy and resilience. You're doing a lot of research on re what resilience is and what it isn't. So you've really pivoted from rowing to well, team performance, which makes sense. You spent your whole life in team performance. And I think one of the things I believe we haven't mentioned it yet, but I believe you had a, uh, a pretty amazing career. It said you were ranked uh, number one in Australia for close to 10 years as a cock. So that's, that is pretty amazing. That says you, at least objectively, you were best of the best uh, from a yeah. rowing perspective. And that whole um, strategy, it's, it's, it's big, a brief, uh, a brief aside. Um, I don't follow Oxford Cambridge sports that much other than rowing and what they call the boat race, which yes. they now as of the last few years have men and women on the same course. So more yes. power to both those universities are doing that. And I think it was the men's race. It was raced on Cambridge local waters, which they normally don't do. But it sure seemed like the Cambridge Cox, and you probably follow it more than I'd had it all over the Oxford Cox. I mean, just the strategy, home waters, you know, he came really close to fouling, but not quite. Mm -hmm. He pushed the envelope mm -hmm. real close. Yeah. But it yeah. seemed like, okay, they won. So clearly the Cox did something right. There's a lot of strategy there, but I digress. Anyway, getting back to resilience. Um, talk about how you pivoted from rowing to resilience and talk about how what you do now and really what your passion is. What, what is your mission with uh, your research and everything you do in team synergy and resilience? Yeah, well, I think... If I'm really honest, my, my passion post-rowing was in, in high-performing teams, yet the narrative I held from that experience of Athens, you know, plastered all over the front pages of them not being good teammates, is I, I turned away from that a little bit. I hid from that. Hmm. Um, even though, as you said, that one, one event doesn't define you, I still let it define me. And so my way around that um, and, and we're talking now 20 years, 20 plus years later, was firstly for the first 15 years, just work harder on something else. Don't talk about it. Keep, you know, keep moving <laughs> to more recently going, oh, I've got these research opportunities. This is really interesting. It's showing me that something like resilience, as an example, we simplify and, you know, show parallels to my rowing experience here. We simplify these complex events. We tell someone just to be more resilient. We sometimes point the finger at people and say they're not resilient. And it was all very simple. And as I started doing this research and thinking about my own experiences when I'm resilient to some things, not to others, resilient at some times, not at other times, um, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with a, a uh, a gentleman called Dr. Michael Kavanagh at Sydney Uni who had this new definition of resilience, which is really exploring what is in our, and I'm going to use dorky language for a second, what's in our surrounding systems, what's around mm -hmm. us that helps us be resilient. And so the research is showing that if you have access to the resources you need to meet the challenge you're facing, you'll be more resilient. It's kind of obvious, right? Yep. So if I look back 
all the other challenges, all my other crucible moments leading into Athens, I had the resources around me. I had a state, Victoria, I could go back to. I could talk to people to find boats and people. And so to meet that challenge, beating a crew, I could find the resources. Post Athens, every one of my good friends, my teammates, was feeling enormous stress. So I didn't have, well, none of us had, those social connections and resources we may have well, the, your, your Your crewmates, they were in the same crucible you were. You know? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know, they're, they're not really resources because they're, they're in there with you. Absolutely. You know? Our family and friends were also, you know, dealing with this. So we didn't have them that we could access. So I want to make sure the listeners hear what you just described and, and, and pull those balloon strings together here. We think so often that resilience is just personal. Right. It's we have it in us or we don't. We develop it or we don't. Um, what you're describing is a more full throated kind of resilience. And that's not just from your experience, but also from your research. The idea Absolutely. is you do indeed have to dig deeper, but that's not all of it. You also have to cast wider. You have to cast yes. your net wider for those assets and relationships that can help you through it. So it's not just about your quote unquote uh, resilience. It's about the resilience you can muster through reaching out and drawing on the strength of others. True? Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautifully said. And the other piece in there, if you don't mind me adding another layer, oh, please. is when we are using resources for a challenge, as we've known from particularly the last few years, mm. we often are not facing one challenge at one time. So then we try and use the same bucket of resources on all of our challenges and it's finite. So we have to keep going wider or make choices. I'm okay to not be resilient on that challenge because I'm going to focus on this challenge. Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, what, you, what, you, what you're saying is pick your battles, you know? Absolutely. You, you don't have Absolutely. to be resilient in every area. Like, you know, I've got a book coming out later this year and it's been a culmination of years and I have a great team. Uh, but there are other areas where, I don't know, I, I don't go bungee jumping or ropes courses and I've never been particularly physically brave. But you know what? That's not a challenge I choose to overcome, at least not in my stage of life. And, you know, if if I wanted to, then I am have a pretty... Uh, high level of perseverance, I'd probably figure out a way. But, you know, you don't have to face every fear, you know, if you choose not to. I mean, it's like, it's that's not being scared, it's being making choices. Where do you Absolutely. want to be resilient? And, you know, you can't, it's not wise to say, okay, I'm going to tackle 15 massive challenges at once. Well, you probably will fail because who can do that? But, you know, pick, pick your battles, right? Where do you want to be resilient? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And the thing is, you know, when we talk about it, it just, if we have lots of expressions around this, right? So it's kind of common sense. But I think about myself. I think about a lot of the clients I work with. Um, and I am thinking about a number of them right now. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of the women I'm working with at the moment through some co executive coaching work. They're very smart women and we and they know this in principle, yet in day-to-day -day, 
They're trying to face the challenge of raising children, building a career, navigating that particular project, buying a house, wanting the garden clean, putting on the best party, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I could hold the mirror up and say the same about me. So, (laughs) you know, we know it in principle, but I just, I don't see sometimes, including myself, that we are particularly deliberate about it deliberate about going wide for all of those resources and engaging them for when we need them and engaging things we don't even know we need yet and kind of holding on to them to be ready, nor about making those choices when we have those choices to make. Now, this is a perfect time. And normally what I say is the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. It's getting to the point we have to land the plane. I was going to think of some kind of thing I thought was clever about bringing boats into dock, but I know with you guys so, not only experts in rowing, but for, you know, but an Olympian in rowing, I was going to make that a terrible analogy. So I'm just going to stick with the, the captain turned on the fastened seatbelt sign. And we're getting to the point where we're going to put the plane on the ground soon. But Katie, before we do that, I would be remiss if I did not give you the chance to let listeners know how they can find out more about you and the services that you offer to folks to help them build teams, live high performance lives and engage with their and their community's resilience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the best way to find me is, is probably through my website and it's www.alloneworldkatiefolks. Do you want me to spell it or will it yeah. be somewhere? Yeah. Yes, please. So K-A-T-I-E. F for Fred, O-U-L-K-E-S for Sam, dot org. And always open to have conversations. Love dialogue. Awesome. Warwick, the last question or questions, your decision is are yours. (laughs) Wow. I mean, this is such a fascinating story. Just your crucibles are so different, but it sounds like you've learned so much. And one of the things I love about what you're saying is, yes, I think, like, you know, I'm somebody that I'd say has high perseverance. So I'm not somebody that tends to quit once I start something. So I'm, I, I get where you're coming from. But yet, you're right. I think understanding we need to have resources, but the, the resources that we'll need may be different depending on the challenge. It's not the same team. You know, if it's a different sport, different challenge. So, I mean, maybe this shouldn't be the last question, but I guess one of the things I'm curious about Knowing what you know now, I mean, would you, can you think of what team you would have assembled to help you get through the post Athens Olympics? I don't think, objectively, I don't think there's anything you could have done once it happened. I mean, you can't know what would have happened. You've got to trust your teammates. Totally makes sense. But in terms of how you handle with the aftermath, is there something, gosh, what would have helped me get through that, you know, from a resilience perspective? That's a really good question. And it depends how wide we want to go. I mean, <laughs> if we start with a couple of things, I think, you know, it's so easy that these things are seen as a ticker box, like bring a psychologist yeah. in. Tick. Right. But really right. the resources needed, absolutely with some professional skills, but also that space, you know, a way to bring us together where there's media not around, to feel supported, even if it was just to sit with each other and just be in that space. Then, of course, there would be resources like whether it's counsellors, psychologists, people that care about us. Um, and then you can go more broadly as we, as we go to helping 
helping people. I mean, it's it's a whole other issue of those that have been in high performance environments. How do they transition into the normal world? And that's challenging enough. Never mind when it's been as high profile. So resources that support in that space. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's a whole other discussion. But post Olympians, you know, it's a challenge. You know, I mean, Michael Phelps, I think, has been pretty open about his mental health challenges. And, you know, it's, you know, it's a different subject. But, yeah, I know, I think in, in my case, um, it took years, decades to get over the fact that I ended a 150-year-old media dynasty that, you know, has, you know, pretty prominent in Australia. And what could I have done differently? And now what am I going to do with my life? And, yeah, sometimes getting through a crucible experience it takes more than months, more than a year or two. It can take years. And maybe there would have been things I could have done to bounce back quicker. But sometimes it just takes time. Sometimes there's no easy road back. And you just got to, you know, in hindsight, give yourself a break. And you know, you're an Olympian. You could say Olympians should have Olympic recoveries, right? It mm-hmm. should just take a yeah. week, right? Because that's what Olympians yeah. do. But you're human, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. the feelings and emotions, it can take time, if not years. And that's, that's not failure. That's just reality. We're human, right? So maybe just giving yourself a break a bit, maybe that would be something. You probably have had that self-talk over the years, right? It's like, look, I, I'm doing my best. I did my best. Quit beating myself up. You've probably had those internal dialogues over the years, I'm guessing. Yeah. Tell myself to shake it off. <laughs> but the other, the other component that's come out in the research, because I did interview a number of Olympians last year with this research on resilience, was talking to people that understood. Mm. So, Warwick, I don't know if it was the same for you, but a lot of uh, people that I speak to that maybe want to ask some questions and they haven't competed at an Olympic level or equivalent right. in sport or life, you know, they kind of go, well, you know, so along the lines of, I don't know why you'd be bothered. I mean, you got you got to do that. That's great. Lucky you got to do it. <laughs> and, of course, of course, there's a piece in there. Of course, we're very fortunate. So, you know, being around the right people that can, can understand, understand. and it's empathize. Like you've, you've spent yeah. your whole life trying to reach a goal. It's a big deal. So as, as we close here, you know, there's a lot of folks listening. Not many of them will have been... Uh, rowers or Olympic rowers, but they've been through crucibles and, you know, resilience seems like a a pipe dream. You know, they're just tough to get out of bed every day. What would be a word of hope that you would give people that are are struggling uh, now? You know, Um, what's a word of hope, would you say? Yeah, I think um, the word that comes to mind is connection. And this Mm. is where I am drawing on my research as well as my experience. But I really encourage, even if you use the word looking through my lens of resources, but social connection, it's it's um, almost like a, um, a vaccination, dare I use that word, for, for negative mental health. And so if you can connect with people, and even if it's a Zoom coffee or a walk if you can, be with others, and I, that will help you connect with yourself as well. All right, that is a wrap on part two of our series, Harnessing Resilience. If you thought our first couple of episodes were entertaining and insightful, you will not want to miss our next episode. 
Warwick and I interview distance runner Heather Camp. You will be amazed by how she harnessed resilience when she fell during a race. It was, this is not an overstatement, a miraculous effort that has been seen by tens of millions of people thanks to a viral video. You'll hear all about it on the next episode of Beyond the Crucible.